You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 42. Questions about the two gender roles, rituals required during the ecclesial age. Why are both praying and prophesying identified? How does a sister covering her head during a prayer demonstrate the foundational principle of God manifestation? On what basis does Paul parallel shaving a sister's head for prayer to be equivalent to covering her head during prayer? What is the commonality between praying and prophesying in the head covering and uncovering ritual of the ecclesial age? We are currently considering the two rituals Jesus Christ has required to be observed during the ecclesial age that are gender-based. Our particular focus at the moment is the ritual Jesus requires for a brother never covering his head while either miraculously prophesying or participating in a prayer, and a sister always covering her head while either miraculously prophesying or participating in a prayer. Out of the original 10 questions we outlined, we're now considering question number three, which is, why are both prayer and prophesying included in that range of application? What is the commonality of these two applications of prayer and prophesying that both come under the requirement of respecting headships? We've already noted how sisters were not permitted to speak during ecclesial functions, which specifically included prophesying and praying. Therefore, the odd presumption that the head covering ritual for sisters and the uncovered head for brothers uh, could be limited to an application of the memorial service uh, is utterly impossible since sisters were forbidden to speak in that application in the first place. But why are these two applications particularly noted by God and Christ in relation to that foundational heavenly substance of respecting the integrity of those four headships of God being the head of Christ, who is the head of man, who is the head of woman. When this ritual has been so frequently considered, infrequently considered in our community over the last hundred years or so, the focus has invariably centered on a sister's head covering during prayer, pretty much ignoring any significance for the brethren's application and pretty much ignoring the application of prophesying. It is no point of a contention to recognize that neither sisters or brethren have the capacity to miraculously prophesy at this time, but there had to be a purpose for that gender-based prophesying application that should provide some insight into the prayer application on the basis of the absolutely necessary harmony control factor in all divine testimony. We do know that both brothers and sisters in the first first two generations 
of the ecclesial age, did have the capacity to miraculously prophesy. On that high Sabbath called Pentecost, the first day of the Feast of Weeks, on that always that 66th day of the year, and also in that year 30 of the Common Era, those 120 in that upper room were baptized in fire and power. They started speaking in other languages for which they had never been trained. We read this in Acts chapter 2, picking up at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So Peter refers to both sons and daughters prophesying and on servants and handmaidens. Peter quotes this from Joel chapter 2. In Joel 2, we read in verse 28, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Again, we have the inclusion of both sons and daughters having the capacity to prophesy. We also read, uh, have read of the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, who each had the capacity to prophesy. In Acts 21, we read, In the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. We also know that miraculous prophesying will be heard again in the approaching restoration of the kingdom of God. We certainly read this in Joel's prophecy in the context of the kingdom restoration. We also reviewed this understanding when we considered the two unforgivable sins of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the presumptuous sin. We read of how the unveiled operation of the Holy Spirit will be visible in two separate ages. Both Jesus and, and Paul refer to these two separate ages, and both in the context of the unforgivable nature of witnessing God's unveiled power, and either declaring it to be sourced from evil, or using those powers to teach lies. We also referenced this two separate age Holy Spirit gifts application in the context of the early and latter reigns and the prophesied drought of the word of God. Peter only prophesied that the Holy Spirit gifts would be offered to two generations of Jews and Gentiles, as he referred to the Gentiles as those being afar off in Acts 2, just as Paul does in Ephesians and also Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah. In Acts 2, we read uh, that Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children 
two generations of Jews, and to all that are far off, the Gentiles, uh, even as many as our Lord, uh, our God, shall call. The promise of receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit was that to that generation of Jews to which Peter was, was speaking, and their children, as well as those afar off, again referring to the Gentiles, but of course the restriction within that two-generation chronological framework would be only as many as our Lord would call. Paul also times the elimination of the uh, availability of the Holy Spirit gifts with the arrival of that which was perfect, meaning complete or fully mature. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, and this indicated that the Holy Spirit gifts would no longer be available when the Word of God was completed with the entire Bible being finished with that last book of Revelation, which was a record of most of the visions that John experienced when he was exiled to Patmos uh, at about uh, year 96 of the Common Era. So yes, sisters certainly did have the capacity to miraculously prophesy in the first two generations of the ecclesial age, and most definitely do not here at the end of the ecclesial age. So there was a legitimate purpose to including that head covering or uncovering when prophesying, at least for those first two generations. Prayer, of course, has no miraculous or Holy Spirit unveiling application. Now that's not to say that the Holy Spirit is not active in our prayers. We read this in Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Because we may not be the best at structuring our prayers, the Spirit makes intercession for us. But thankfully, this veiled operation of the Spirit of God does not qualify for the same two-age limitation as the Holy Spirit gifts, such as prophesying. So, the question has to be addressed. Why was it that sisters had to always cover their heads whenever they miraculously prophesied or, or unmiraculously participated in a prayer, and why the exact opposite was true for a brother. The common issue between both of these applications is direct communication. When a sister prays to God through Christ, she is bypassing her divinely appointed headship with respect shown to God with that head covering, that symbol of authority on her head that covers her own glory, that hair that's given to her for her glory. But when a brother prays to God, there is no head between himself and Christ. And he demonstrates respect for that understanding by communicating directly to God through Christ, uh, through Christ with an uncovered head. Prophesying is communicating directly from God and Christ as opposed to directly to God in Christ through prayer. A sister or a brother would be the conduit 
for the Holy Spirit miraculous prophetical declarations. Uh, this was not true for the miraculous gift of, of speaking in tongues, those abundant languages that were first generated at Babel. No head covering or uncovering was demanded when miraculously healing the sick or, or even raising the dead. It was just prophesying from and praying to that were the exclusive applications for brethren to never cover their heads and sisters to always cover their heads. So we should ask if there may have been a gender-based precedent for this kind of application in the previous First Kingdom age that would highlight this headship principle? And the answer would be yes. In Numbers chapter 30, starting at verse 1, we have uh, instructions um, given through Moses um, by God. We read in Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which Yahweh has commanded. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord, and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow, and her bond wherewith she has bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she has bound her soul shall stand. But if her father, in other words her head, disallow her in the day that he hears, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she has bound her soul shall stand, and the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. And if she had at all an husband when he vowed, when she vowed, in other words, uh, her head, or uttered aught out of her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband hear it, and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vow shall stand, and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband, in other words, her head, disallowed her on the day that he heard it, then he shall make her vow which she vowed and that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul of none effect, and the Lord shall forgive her. But every vow of a widow or of her that's divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound her soul by a bond with an oath, and her husband heard it and held his peace at her and disallowed her not, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she had bound her soul shall stand. But And this is repeated again, same exact directions. But if her husband has utterly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatsoever proceeded out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the bond of her soul shall not stand. Her husband, her head, has made them void and the Lord shall forgive her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it, or her husband may make it void. But if her husband altogether hold his peace at her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows, or all her bonds which are upon her. He confirms them, 
because he held his peace at her in the day that he heard them. But in any way, if he shall any ways make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes which the Lord the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, and between a father and his daughter, being yet in her youth in her father's house. A woman in the enlightened community could certainly make a direct vow or sworn promise directly to God, and this was certainly the case with Hannah when she prayed silently before the tabernacle, which is interestingly called the temple, here in 1 Samuel. Uh, in 1 Samuel 1, we read, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the infliction of your handmaid and remember me, and not forget your handmaid, but will give unto me your handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now, Elkanah, her husband, certainly never heard that vow in the day that it was uttered. She spoke silently. But Hannah may have told her husband, and particularly after she found out she was pregnant, obviously Elkanah did not invalidate that vow, which he had the right to do by God's own law. In the day he heard of that vow, Elkanah would have had the right to invalidate that vow so that his son would not have to be a Nazarite from birth, would not have to be given to the high priest, but could grow up in his own house. Clearly, Elkanah did not invalidate Hannah's vow. He shared that sacrifice with his wife, and Samuel matured to be the last judge in Israel, as well as a prophet of God. The father or the husband uh, of a sister in the truth during that first kingdom of God age acted as the head of that sister. If that daughter or wife bypassed her head by vowing directly to God, that headship had the authority to invalidate that vow. And there would be no guilt assigned to that sister in the truth for failing to fulfill that vow. There was no, no distinction of a brother having the capacity to negate his sister's vow, he's not a head. It was only the father of an unmarried woman or the husband, not, not, a, not a brother, not an uncle or a cousin. Interestingly, a widow or a wife that had been rejected, presumably on the basis of discovering on the wedding night that she was not a virgin, as um, expressed in the laws of the first kingdom age. These sisters in the truth had no male head to invalidate their vows. Any of their vows would stand and had to be performed as promised to avoid the transgressional sin of the, of the failure to perform a sworn vow. But in that context, perhaps we should also reference the great blessing to the sisters of that age that was afforded through those father and husband headships. The law of participating in the Passover meal um, was one was that one had to be circumcised, uh, which is impossible for a female 
the only way a daughter could legitimately participate in the Passover, which is a historical and prophetic celebration of the passing over of death, would be on the basis of their relationship with their head, uh, their father or a wife, her husband. This is exactly the basis by which the ecclesial bride of our Savior will legitimately participate in the substance of that forever passing over of death in the immortalization process. The only way we can be saved is on the basis of our relationship to our Messiah, who is presented in Scripture as both our husband and our father. As we have noted several times before in this series, Jesus qualifies as our father in the immortalization process as well as our husband, constituting that heavenly substance, casting the rituals of a father or husband's vow invalidation and Passover participation, which each shadow this same headship hierarchy that Paul references for the gender-based ritual of head coverings during prayer and prophesying. So these two head uncovering and head covering ritual applications have a commonality of speaking for God and Christ and speaking to God and Christ. There's a direct communication, but in opposite directions. The reason why a brother under the laws of the ecclesial age could not ever miraculously prophesy with a covered head and cannot pray with a covered head is to recognize that brethren have no other head besides Jesus Christ. The reason why a sister under the laws of the ecclesial age had to always miraculously prophesy with a covered head and to pray with a covered head is to recognize that she does have a God-appointed headship between her and Jesus Christ. So let's move on to question number five, as we've already considered question four, and that is, what is the head that is dishonored when inappropriately praying with a covered or uncovered head? Would that disrespect be to one's own head or their divinely appointed head above them? We read in this offense in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. While this may seem to be a, a very obvious answer, apparently that's not been the case historically. These statements about dishonoring our heads through disrespecting the divinely mandated ritual immediately follow the declaration of the four headships stated in verse 3, which says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the man, woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Therefore, it should be very obvious that the head that a brother dishonors by praying with a covered head would be Jesus Christ. And it's never wise to dishonor Jesus Christ, to ritually declare that there's an additional headship or power or authority between ourselves and Jesus Christ. Dishonoring the Son of God is offensive to God as well. 
wouldn't uh, inappropriately dishonoring our own son, for those of us who have children, offend the parents that are among us. The same is true for the sister, whoever prays to God through Christ without covering her head. Paul justifies this headship dishonoring by then explaining the man is the glory of Christ and the woman serves as the glory of man. Therefore, a sister praying to God through Christ with an uncovered head is shining the unveiled glory of man in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the apostle's justification for this gender-based application differential for this ritual. Paul states as well that a woman's long hair is a glory to her, which is why that glory should be covered when a humble female servant of God directly approaches God and Christ through prayer, bypassing her divinely appointed head and shining her own unveiled glory and the glory of man in the face of Christ. Paul explains this is offensive to Jesus Christ, as with the man with a covered head that dishonors Christ, of course, Christ being his head, and therefore God as well. So a sister praying with an uncovered head dishonors her immediate God-appointed head, and therefore his head as well, which is Christ, and also Christ's head, all those headships above her. Uh, those divinely appointed headships. Why would anyone want to initiate a prayer by immediately offending the one to whom they pray? By refusing to respect the hierarchy established in the creation order and reflecting the relationship between Christ and his ecclesial bride. As we've noted, dismissing the physical applications of earthly rituals is automatically disrespectful to the heavenly substance casting that ritual shadow. It's also disrespectful to our Creator's plan to harmoniously blend earthly and heavenly together in the end. We should not disrespect God's plan or His headship principle by refusing to follow fairly simple directions that present a distinct consistency in the principles involved all through God's written testimony. I'm sure we all remember the story of uh, in 2 Samuel 10, how the two mourners that King David sent to comfort Hanan, the son of the dead king of Ammon, uh, were so disrespected by having half their beards shaved and their clothing cut back to expose themselves indecently. David, as the appointed head of his servants, anointed so, had been dishonored. This dishonor resulted in war between Ammon and Israel. Despite hiring Syrian mercenaries, the Ammonites were defeated and humbled by David and Israel. It is not wise to offend our own king, Jesus Christ by dishonoring our appointed heads, by either covering or uncovering our heads during our prayers. So let's address question number six. 
Why is shaving the head of a sister equivalent to covering her head while praying or miraculously prophesying? And this may seem a little incongruous at first, that if a sister will not cover her head during prayer or prophesying, that the hair on her head should be completely uncovered by shaving off her hair. But, but that this is the only alternative? But in the context of Paul's justification reasoning for this ritual, and in the context of historical precedent, this alternative does make logical sense. Paul states that the long hair of a sister qualifies as her glory, and also that woman is the glory of man. Therefore, a sister refusing to pray with a covering over her glory that projects the glory of man will have to shave her head to avoid offending God and Christ while praying. Removing that self-glory and that projected glory of man in the face of Christ in a prayer by head shaving is the only alternative to covering that personal and projected glory of the woman's head. And that projected glory, of course, being man. A sister who veils her glory when she approaches God and Christ in prayer is not only demonstrating the appropriate humility and necessary obedience, she is being God-like in a way that the brother with his required uncovered head during prayer is not. The veiling of glory is exactly what defines the principle of God manifestation, the foundational divine principle of all heavenly truths. God does not deal with us directly. He veils his glory by working through others, through angels, through both male and female prophets, through his perfect son, through kings and high priests, through the features and operating structure of creation, and even through pagan military empires like Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. God veils his immense power and his glory by manifesting himself, radiating himself through other things and people. This is the basic reason why he's not recognized very easily by so many people who profess that they are looking for him and trying to understand him. God has objected to how the enlightened community has so often adopted the delusions of paganism and societies in which they lived which is worshiping the avenue through which God veils himself, as opposed to worshiping the creator behind that veil. Now, this is how Paul begins his letter to the Roman Ecclesia in chapter 1, warning us how creation is actually going to serve as a witness for or against us when God unveils his power to address all ungodliness in those who have held the truth, but not in righteousness. We read in Romans chapter 1, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they're without excuse. Because that when they knew God, obviously the enlightened community, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. So Paul explains the principle of God manifestation, saying that the invisible things of God can actually be clearly seen in the things that he has made, which will leave those who have held the truth, but in unrighteousness, without any excuse. This is why we study this subject understanding God's righteousness. Because we do not want to hold God's truth without understanding and demonstrating his rightness in all things. Paul also explains the historic apostasy progression of the enlightened community, which included eventually adopting society's corrupted religious understandings by worshiping the objects through which God filtered or veiled his power and his glory. Corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and therefore, and therefore dishonored themselves before God. Sisters veil their glory and man's glory by covering their heads during their prayers. God veils his power and glory for two very specific purposes. First, that veiling of himself is an act of mercy, loving mercy. Because if God revealed himself openly, we would not survive. Second, that veiling is demonstrated in God's policy of communicating with an intentionally complex filter that gives, as Jesus uh, explains, gives to those who have within the enlightened community while simultaneously taking away what little one has, and always in the context of the enlightened community. That testimony veiling policy is for the development of spiritual quality in those who will be saints. But historically, our community has mistakenly presumed God's greatest goal is quantity, not quality. Having more believers as opposed to better believers. The principle of God manifestation the veiling of God's glory and power, and the policy communicating with intentional complexity are absolute contradictions to that common, incorrect presumption of quantity 
as opposed to quality. This veiling of God's power by radiating it through weaker vessels is commented on by Paul to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we, we read that it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts, <laughs> the darkness of our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. This is the principle of God veiling his power and his glory through Jesus Christ and through our own earthen vessels. Sadly, that glory is often claimed for ourselves and not identified with God. This is exclusively the case with unenlightened mankind and can certainly be the case within, within the enlightened community today as it certainly was at the beginning of the ecclesial age. So, when a sister approaches God through Christ, veiling her personal glory and the glory of man, she is being God-like, demonstrating the principle of God-manifestation that is the foundational principle of all heavenly truths. Therefore, why would a sister ever want to forfeit that opportunity to be God-like by praying with an uncovered head at any time, in any place? Why would a sister ever want to offend our Creator's rightness by praying with an uncovered head. So, this shaving of the head, equivalency to covering the head, satisfies that same humble application of the temporary elimination of the woman's and the man's glory. The shaving is certainly a longer-term alternative to the short-term head covering, but that's why Paul says that if a woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it's a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. The shaving of heads has been a procedure that was required by God in other rituals during the previous First Kingdom age. Uh, this was done at the conclusion of a Nazarite vow. It was done in the restoration ritual for a healed leper although the healed leper had to shave all the hair from their entire body, uh, just like the Levites in their dedication ritual when they were separated to God, who took that tribe instead of all the firstborn in Israel. And it was also done for a woman taken in war that an Israelite wanted for his wife, a, a war bride. Similarly, there's a command never, never to shave the head of a mortal priest in the future kingdom. Which is related. These shaving procedures, along with the natural laws of creation, testify to the lesson of the hair and the shaving of the hair. Now, now hair, creationally, issues naturally from our bodies, although more predominantly on the head than anywhere else on the body, which is an issue that blends perfectly with all other divine rightness issues. 
due to the curse in Eden, due to that first contradiction of God's righteousness, the principle of corruption became a standard in the new and highly degraded operating structure of the creational order. Everything corrupts, decays, rots, ages, and all living things die. It's the natural order under the curse of sin and death. That serpent perspective that had to be presented to Adam and Eve independently due to their original innocent condition became an operating default feature in the naturally heart-based thought process of mankind after they, we chose the serpent's rightness over the rightness of God's testimony. Now, what naturally and comfortably issues from our minds under this curse is contradictory to God's righteousness. And that's why we are repeatedly told to circumcise our hearts, to elevate the mind over the heart in our understandings of what is truly right. So just as the serpent frame of reference naturally issues from our heart-controlled minds, so hair issues naturally from our sin-cursed bodies. That is most clearly witnessed in the head, and somewhat more for the man than a woman, as hair would naturally cover most of the head of a man if we, if we, if we don't shave our faces. The emphasis for the woman is the length of that hair on her head. As Paul points out, it's a shame, an absolute shame for a man to have long hair, the eyes of God, but long hair serves as the glory of the woman, as a glory for her. Therefore, the shaving of the head is a ritual demonstrating the, the removal of all that is on the surface of the head that naturally grows out of it, just like our words and deeds that are corrupted by that natural serpent philosophy that the enlightened community is tasked with recognizing, resisting, and overcoming. The, this parallel between the hair issuing from our heads to our thoughts, words, and deeds issuing from our minds is very clearly demonstrated in the two head-shaving examples of the Nazarite and the war bride. The parallel between shaving all, uh, all of the hair from the entire body of a recovered leper to the principle of corruption demonstrates that feature of our cursed natural order due to the curse of sin and the death that was righteously imposed on Adam and Eve. The hair of the Nazarite is defined as the consecration of his or her head. That uncut hair serves as the, served as the physical evidence of that Nazarite vow that separated one to God. It's the same Hebrew word that's used to describe a crown, and particularly the crown of the high priest. In fact, that crown that could not be placed on the high priest's head, but had to be on the top of his head covering, that required turban. At the conclusion of the Nazarite vow term, the head, that same head, is shaved, and that hair is placed into the altar flames to consume the peace offering. 
that harmony offering where everyone fellowshiped together. That hair, that crown of honor for separating oneself to God for a particular term, was shaved from the head. That hair represented the sacrifices, all the deeds and the thoughts of that Nazarite during the term of his or her vow. And that hair was given to God in the flames of the peace offering. This hair focus of the Nazarite vow certainly blends with the statement by Paul that a sister unwilling to cover her head during a prayer should then shave her head. An Israelite wanting to take a bride from among those taken in war had to have that woman participate in a 30-day procedure before being able to take her as his wife. Uh, we read about this in Deuteronomy 21, where it says, When you go forth to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God has delivered them into your hands, and you have taken them captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire unto her that you would have her to your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her and to remain in your house and bewail her father and her mother a full month. And after that, you shall go in unto her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. This shaving of the head and nails represents a transition from one life to another, from paganism to enlightenment and from no inheritance to the promised land to a shared inheritance in what God has promised. Her old frame of reference, religion and family, are gone, and a new life has begun. This removal of the hair on the head represents the transition to an entirely new way of thinking and acting. This head-shaving ritual of a woman also blends with Paul's declaration that a sister objecting to a head covering during uh, to, to head covering during a prayer should have her head shaved. That rebellious frame of reference suggesting equality and the elimination of God's appointed headship by praying with an uncovered head would need to be shaved away to maintain the same result as the head covering. But as Paul says, if, if shaving one's head is less desirable, then a sister should just cover her head whenever she participates in a prayer. Now, the healed leper restoration ritual was somewhat different in that the entire body had to be shaved, all the hair on one's body. Now, leprosy is a disease where the body corrupts slowly as if it were already a corpse in the grave but the person suffering from that leprosy is still alive. This disease is a result of the curse of sin and death, testifying in a way that emulates how a dead body corrupts into uh, dust over a period of time. And therefore this healed leper ritual is a shadow of salvation. When the effects of the curse of sin and death are eliminated, and this is why the ritual ends on the eighth day. 
uh, just like the, the third and fourth salvation events in that eighth divine day, that eighth millennium since creation. It's also why part of the procedure for the spiritual restoration of the healed leper to the community of the enlightened involves the blood applications on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right large toe, just like the priesthood ordination procedure. However, with the heel leper, there was also an oil application to those same three body points for the heel leper spiritual restoration ritual. The shaving of all body hair for the heel leper on the seventh day, as opposed to just shaving the head, uh, is significant. But then, the, then finishing the spiritual restoration ritual on the eighth day is another example of that extensive seven and eight salvation pattern that runs all through Scripture. And we've, we've already noted in previous classes how Jesus was the seventh to be res resurrected on his seventh day, but only to mortality, and then the eighth to be resurrected on an eighth day, that next day, um, and then how the first set of saints will be immortalized in the seventh millennium, and then the second set of saints will be immortalized in the eighth millennium, and and on and on with all the examples, uh, including the the two uh, great covenant uh, signature rituals uh, of Sabbath observance and circumcision, and the uh, um, the uh, eight Sabbath years and a jubilee uh, period, et cetera, et cetera. Um, therefore, Paul's statement that a shaved head for a sister, preferring not to pray with a covered head, would certainly present the same headship respect from a historical ritual reference and from the testimony of creation. In our next class, we should be able to finish up the original, our original 10 questions, um, particularly since we have had to address some of those items uh, already in the context of earlier questions. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.